Well, pray with me, will you? Father, you are so good. We confess this morning our fears that to be a light shining in the darkness, a city set on a hill that cannot be hid in our power causes us to fear. But we're so grateful that on the cross, you nailed that sin and put it to death so that we could walk in freedom. You said in your word that it's for freedom that Christ set us free. And so, Father, we're so grateful that you gave us Jesus. We're grateful that you're building your church. And Holy Spirit, I pray that as we open your word in this moment that The eloquence of a speaker wouldn't be what we rest on, but that your word would move in power, just as you promised it would. And it's in the strong name of Jesus that we pray, and everybody said, amen. You can be seated. Welcome, welcome. It's a good day to be in church, is it not? It sure is. It was a little bit, a little bit chilly this morning. I know, I know, I am totally a Floridian now, but uh, I grew up in Philadelphia, so I know a little bit about the cold, all right? So anytime there's a semblance at all that it might not be 100 million degrees this afternoon, I feel good about it. And I think by Wednesday, we might have what we need, all right? But we're in the middle of a series on Galatians. If you're a guest of ours today, I'm really excited that you're here. My name is Mitch. I have the joy of being one of the pastors here. And uh, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, meet me there in Galatians chapter 3. We're going to cover a lot of ground today. And really what I think is going to cover some mountaintops of theology with you today. So we're, we're going to take a deep dive into Galatians 3 and talk about some of those Uh, With you, but last week in Galatians 2, Paul addressed church leadership, the church council, with this doctrine of the justification by faith alone, right? And so we we hang everything on that doctrine that we bring nothing to the table, that Jesus brings everything to the table. And that's good news. That's good news for you to get into heaven, but it's also good news for you to live your life for Jesus. And so we're going to look at that today. But what what we're essentially saying is that the church doesn't come, open the Bible, and every week bring a thousand different messages. Right? We, we, we don't spend the rest of our life telling a bunch of different messages from this book. What we do is we say that the church has one message that we share in a thousand different ways. Because the message is Jesus. The message is always Jesus. And the message is always going to be Jesus. Even Jesus himself, when he rose from the dead, was on the road to Emmaus and took a few people and walked them through. The Bible says, all of the scriptures... Concerning what? Any Bible nerds? Himself. Right? And so it all points us to Jesus. There's one story here. And so we find ourselves in Galatians 3 focused on the fact that Jesus dies for sinners. Jesus dies for broken people because broken people are all that there are. 
And that's the setting. That's where we are. And so he's going to shift. Paul, the apostle, is going to shift his attention from talking to the leaders of the church. And now he's going to talk to the churches themselves. Remember, this uh, region of Galatia is a collection of churches that he's writing to. It's not just one. So he's he's really writing to us, is he not? (laughs) He's writing to Christians. He's writing to followers of Jesus. And here's how it starts right here. Right out of the gate in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians. Do you ever feel like that sometimes? Do you ever just walk through your Christian life and feel like a fool? I do. Don't leave me hanging up here. I know you do. I know you. I know most of you. All right? And I know that there are times when we could say, Oh, foolish you. All right? We're all there. We all get it. And so Paul says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has confused you? What, what is this thing that is happening in your life? There's a few things that the scripture is clear, crystal clear on. And this is one of them, Paul says. He goes on, he says, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. I love this because he's addressing the people. And like a good pastor... Paul's going to say, let me ask you this one question. Then he asks six, right? Any good preacher, amen? And so here's what he says. Let me ask you only this, but it's not only this. He goes on a little rant here. He says, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Was Jesus good enough to get you into heaven, but you have to be good enough to keep you? Are you so foolish? Verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him? As righteousness. This is a passage of scripture, chapter 3, that uh, has a lot of interpretations. I just want to be clear with you right out the gate. So, if you were to study this and dig deep and, and do the commentary thing and look at a lot of things, just verse 20 alone, when we get there, uh, has over 200 interpretations. All right? So, kind of crazy, right? There, there's, there's a lot of opinions about this passage of scripture but there's a few things that are incredibly clear and and what i don't want you to think is that it's daunting what i want you to realize is that it's exciting and that when you walk through a passage like this what you're going to get is these massive themes these massive concepts that when applied to your life can radically change your life because what what it does is it takes it from the theoretical and it takes it into the practical. Because uh, when you read the Bible, what, what we're after is transformation, not information, right? We, we started this church on a sermon series about not just being scholars, but being soldiers. That what, what we're looking for is for God, the Holy Spirit, to come in with good news. And what do we know? That when good news comes in, good news always goes out. And so... Paul is asking them, how does that happen? How does that happen? Are are we going to be fools 
and think that we pull that off? Or are we going to trust Jesus, understanding that he will pull that off? The Bible says it this way elsewhere, that he who has begun a good work in you will finish it. Right? And so, so that's where we are. But what, what I want to do today is just to kind of help us stay on track is, is climb three mountain peaks with you. All right? just want you to think of it like that. We're, we're, we're going to be all over chapter three, but I want you to think of it as three mountain peaks. One, two, three. The third being the best. But peak number one is what we just read, and it's Abraham. What does Abraham have to do with the story? Look, look then again at verse 6. It says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are so, the sons of Abraham, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. What does Abraham have to do with anything? So thousands of years before Galatians chapter 3 was written, God initiates a relationship with his people. And what he does is he comes to Abraham. Abraham, by the way, didn't, wasn't born a Christian. Okay? I think sometimes we think about these uh, men of faith, these fathers of the faith, these pillars of the faith, as though they just like always had it easy with God. Abraham was very likely, in all likelihood, he was a pagan guy doing pagan things, living his own pagan life. And just living life, doing what he wants to do. But God comes to him in Genesis chapter 12. I think we have that on the screen. Genesis chapter 12. And, and, and here's, here's what the Bible says. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now that, just stop for a second. Imagine if you were just living your life, God appears to you in the flesh, in the person, and says to you, I want you to get rid of everything you have, and I want you to just start driving. It's essentially what happened to Abraham. God comes to him and says, I just want you to drop everything. I want you to set aside your dreams. I want you to set aside your job. I want you to set aside everything that you have in your life. And I want you to start going. And I'm going to show you where to go. And then verse 2. Here's the promise. I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. And make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Are you a family of the earth today? The answer is yes. This is not a trick question. You are a human. You live on earth. You are a family of the earth. Right? And so what God does is God makes a promise thousands of years ago to a guy named Abram. And he says, if you will trust me, I will bless you. If you will trust me, I will bless you. And not only will I bless you, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth because of you. Jump to chapter 15 in Genesis. And here's what it says. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So finally God brings him to this place. Brings him to this land. 
to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, and a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. This is Old Testament for we're about to make a covenant. All right? We're gathering all the supplies, doing all the stuff. And the way that it worked in that day and age is two people would come. They would bring all of this stuff. And then look at the next verse, verse 10. And he brought them all of them and cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in the half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. All right? But stop. So here's the setting. So there's an aisle like this. And what happens is the two parties making a covenant would take those animals, chop them in half, and line them up, and blood would start to fill in the, in, the, in the middle. So that there was a path that you would walk with blood. And how many of you know they didn't wear skinny jeans back in the day? And so they would take their robe, and they would walk through the blood, both of them together, and the blood would splatter up on their clothes, and it would be a reminder that whichever one of those parties broke the covenant, they were liable to the blood of the animals that was shed, that they would be killed for not holding up their end of the covenant. And so that is the picture. And so God comes to Abraham, says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. And we're going to make a covenant now together so that you'll know that I'm true to my word. But here's the cool part. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. He's prophesying about Egypt, right? The time they spent in Egypt. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking pot, fire pot, and flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river Egypt to the great river, to the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenezites, the Kadamonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Parasites, the Blobblebites, you know, all of the ites, right? And the Amorites and Canaanites and Gigashites and Jebusites. What is all that about? Here's, here's the thing. So God brings Abram to this place and makes him a promise. And he sets up the covenant and he causes Abraham to fall asleep. And God passes through in that. The Holy Spirit of God, that smoking fire pot, passes through on his own. Why? Because the covenant that God made with Abraham had nothing to do with Abraham. And that's good news for you and it's good news for me. That when God made that covenant to bless all the people of the earth through Abraham and to create a people for himself and pass through that covenant, what he did was God did it and didn't require us to do anything. Paul's saying in Galatians 3 that when the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham, that that is what was happening. That God comes and makes a covenant and calls Abraham to himself and Abraham brought nothing to the table and did nothing. What does it say was credited to Abraham as righteousness? That he believed 
God. Abraham didn't do anything. Abraham believed in something. Better yet, Abraham believed in someone. And what I want to say to you is that this first mountain peak that you climb in your Christian faith is this I, this this recognition that God has built for himself a people. He's made a covenant with his people and it has nothing to do with you. It is initiated by God and it is sustained by God and that is good news. Amen? So, it wasn't about Abraham. It was about God. You know, a fun fact about Abraham is the fact that when this was all happening, he was like 100 years old and his wife was like 100 years old and when God comes and says, you're going to have a great nation, they didn't have any kids. And I, I mean, I don't want to get too much into the science of uh, having kids, but when you're a hundred, it's a little harder to have kids, you know what I'm saying? All right, amen. But uh, leave that one. You can ask your parents later, teenagers. But uh, Sarah goes so far as when Abraham tells her, she, she, she just laughs at him. She just laughs at him. She's like, what are you talking about? But what does God do? God gives him a son. His name is Isaac. And well, here, here's, the, here's the part that we wrestle with. If all of it is from God and all of it is about God, what am I supposed to do with that? What am I supposed to do with that? How, how do I transition that to my life? Because, because there are those places in the Bible that tell you to do stuff. How, how do I transition that how do I transition that? Let me say it to you this way, and then I want to explain it. Um, when, grace, when the grace of God comes into your life, here's what begins to happen. What you ought to do starts to become what you want to do. Does that make sense? That, that, what, what happened with Abraham here? Abraham uh, believes the stuff that God's saying, and this stuff is crazy, and then he sees his wife give birth and all this stuff. But what does God do then? God, God comes and he tests. Abraham's faith, doesn't he? He asks Abraham for radical obedience. And we don't have time to go there. It's not going to be on the screen. But in Genesis chapter 2, what God does is he comes freaking out over here. <laughs> it's dramatic effect for Genesis 22. But uh, what happens is God comes to Abraham in Genesis 22 and he says, I want you to take Isaac you can just hit stop on all the lights. And Eli, will you just bring up the house ones? It's all good. We might have to unplug them. I don't know. <laughs> ben will have to fix it. But what happens is it comes in Genesis 22 and he comes to Abraham and he says this. He says, I want you to take Isaac. You know that nation that I promised you? I want you to take Isaac and I want you to take him to the mountain and I want you to build an altar and I want you to sacrifice Isaac on that altar. Now just think about the crisis of faith that you would have at that moment. So you, you, you were called by God. You weren't looking for God. You weren't seeking God. But God comes to you, initiates a covenant with you, causes you to fall asleep so you can't keep your end of the covenant. He's the one who keeps the covenant for you. And then he tells you to take that offspring that you weren't supposed to have, that he gave you miraculously, and now he wants you to kill it. Think about that. Think, think about the crisis of faith that is happening. But, but here's what's so great. Abraham's faith was so rooted and trusting in God 
that the thought process for Abraham was not, I can't do that. The thought process for Abraham was radical obedience because what he knew is that I can go sacrifice my son and God's either going to bring him back to life or he's going to provide a ram before I kill him. Abraham knew in that moment my responsibility in trusting a faithful God who has proved himself faithful to this point is to simply obey and God will handle the details. Does that make sense? So, so for you and I, people who have been saved by grace alone through faith alone, don't sit back and indulge in sin in the ways of this world. Why? Why? Because we trust God. We believe God and we're not only saved by grace through faith, but we also live in grace through faith. So we can live a different life knowing that God will provide. Because what, what, what is ultimately going to happen is as you begin to walk with Jesus, He's going to ask you to obey in ways that are uncomfortable for you to obey. Isn't He? When you walk into work and... Do we need to unplug that? You can totally come and unplug that. <laughs> He's not unplugging it because normally I'm the guy who does it because I'm the only one who can reach it. <laughs> He's going to get a ladder. <laughs> They're just all looking at me like... <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. It's all good. So, we can risk everything like Abraham did with Isaac, simply because we know that God is good, that God is sufficient, and that God alone will satisfy. So that's really hard. And, and when I read the story of Abraham and Isaac, I struggle with it because I look at my kids, I've got three kids, and I'm not sure that I could do that. I'm not sure that I could do that. I'd like to think that I could. But Abraham's radical obedience was built in the fact that God came to him. Not that he went to God. See, because if it's about what I can do for God and me coming to God, what's the problem with that? When God asks me to do something radical in obedience, it's more, it's more about me than it is about him. And at that point, I fail. Because I'm the one living it, not Christ. Does that make sense? So, so what we're after is what we ought to do becoming what we want to do. So that's peak number one. And we interrupt your regularly scheduled programming <laughs> to unplug some crazy lights. Maybe, maybe we should cast some demons out, Ben, while you're up there. The second... The second... Um, the second peak is the peak of the law, right? The peak of the law. And, and really, it's, it's the, the peak, the mountain peak of Moses. So what he does is he, he moves from Abraham to Moses here. And jump down to verse 15, and let me read some of this to you. Verse 15 of Galatians 3. He says, to, Paul's writing, he says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. What is that saying? 
not all roads lead to the same place. There are not many paths to God. There is one path, one offspring to God. We say around here all the time that following Jesus is both inclusive and exclusive. It's inclusive in that Jesus says that he's not willing for anyone to perish, but that all would come to repentance. So it's inclusive. God wants all men of all times and all places to come to him. So it's inclusive. But it's exclusive in the fact that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So that's what he's saying. But then he says this. He says, this is what I mean. The law, which was given to Moses, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no long, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it as a promise. Verse 19, important question. Why then the law? Why then the law? Peak number two is the law. Why did God give a law? If it's all about God and all about grace and all about grace flowing through you to the world, which it is, why did God give us the law? Why did God give us the law? First off, he starts by talking about what the law cannot do. It can't bring life, it can't bring salvation, and it can't bring right standing before God. Why the law? The answer that Paul gives is that the law was given to Moses to show you and I the futility, the weakness, and the inability of our flesh to deliver on what we desire the most. Now listen, th- this, is, this is the place where American Christians struggle the most. You see, because theologically, we think with Abraham, right? We know theologically, we know the right answers, that it's all about Jesus, it's never about me, but when it comes to living practically every single day of your life, we don't totally believe that we play no part in it. We don't. And... And I can't speak for you, but I know my heart and I know my family's heart. And it's the most difficult aspect to hand over to the Lord, is it not? That every day when you get up, that you have to live in trust of Jesus, not of yourself. You see, because for most of us, some of you probably don't struggle with this, but for most of us who are get it done kind of people, what happens when a problem arises in your life? What do you do? You make a plan and you fix it, right? And if some other problem happens, what do we do? We make a plan and we... When a problem happens to one of our friends, what do we do? We fix it, right? When when we can't fix it, what do we do? We go to the government and we say, hey, fix it. Right? Because that's the culture that we live in. And, and when you go to work, there's expectations. And when you come home to your family, there's expectations. And your whole life is built around expectations and solving problems and fixing things and doing things and performing and performing and climbing the ladder of success. And it's, 
everywhere. My six-year-old goes to school and it's a performance treadmill. And it's do a little better. How was your behavior today? Where were you on the little ladder chart? And if you get the top, woo, we celebrate. And then the other one goes to a different school and he's got a different one. Did you get a sticker today? You did? Yay! You didn't? Ugh. Right? And it's like, why for the 400th day in a row did you not get a sticker? <laughs> it's like, why? Why? I bet you can't guess which one doesn't get a sticker. <laughs> we love them both, praise Jesus. Right? But what are they learning already? What are they learning already? It's on your shoulders. It's on your shoulders. And what is what does the law do to us? Why is the law, which makes you feel horrible, by the way. Let, let me read you what, listen to what Martin Luther, that great reformer 500 years ago. Here's what he said. The principal point of the law is not to make men better. The law is not in the Bible for you to measure your life and say, okay, I'm getting it. I'm getting it. Figuring this thing out. I've got it going on. No, what does he say? It's not to make them better, but worse. That is to say, it shows them their sin. And by that knowledge, they can be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken. And by this means, driven to seek grace. You know why God gave us the law? Not so you could measure yourself, but that so you could see yourself the way that you really are. God comes to Abraham and makes a promise and says, I'm going to make a covenant to you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to send Jesus through you. And through your line, and it's going to bless all people in all the earth. But before we get to Jesus, I've got to bring this thing in because human beings have been the same since the start, right? God comes to Adam and Eve in the garden and he says, where are you? <laughs> and they're hiding and then they come out and he's like, oh, you put clothes on, why? <laughs> and it's like, because we thought we could do it our own way. But that didn't work out. Now I'm... Now my wife's naked, so I've got to cover up, right? And it was broken from the start. Why? Because it's always been about a radical trust in the Word of God. And God gave us the law to show us. And Romans, even in the New Testament, says the law is still there to be held up in front of you like a mirror so that you are never confused about who's doing the work of saving you. That it's never about you and what you can do. And that's good news. It's good news. Because most of us don't have the problem of thinking too high of God's law, but too low. We are actually convinced that we can keep it. We'd never say it gets us into heaven, but we live practically as though we can do it. And I want to encourage you today to just hear the shout of the law of God that you are guilty. That you are guilty. And if that makes you feel helpless, that's the point. You cannot keep God's law and you're not going to be able to keep God's law because you need a radical dependence on God. So it's Abraham... And then it's the law of Moses. And these two peaks are incredibly important because we get the picture of God. Then we get the picture of man. 
And now we come to this third peak, which is the most glorious peak of all. Look at verse 19. And uh, we'll read down through verse 29. Why then the law? Love that question. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not, for if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. That's what we just talked about. You can't pull it off. The law doesn't deliver on what it condemns. It condemns you, but it can't save you. Verse 22, But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The third mountain peak that we climb is the mountain peak of Christ. Abraham, Moses and the law, and Christ. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was, your, was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. According to a promise. Paul brings it full circle. He brings it back to Abraham. Jesus was the seed that was promised to Abraham. See, for Abraham, it wasn't just that, Abraham, you're going to have a lot of kids. You're going to have a great people. But when he said, I'm going to bless the whole earth through you, what he was saying was, through your line, I'm going to send a Savior for the world. Through, through your seed, I'm going to bless the entire world. And the whole law and Abraham and all of it is just pointing us to Christ. Because Jesus came to fulfill the demand of the law for us. He came to endure the wrath of God in place of us. The name of our church is Redeemer City Church. And that wasn't just a stab in the dark. The word redeemed was a term used in Bible times for when a slave was purchased with the intention of setting them free. Put yourself in that place. It's a picture of us apart from Christ, chained and cursed beneath a law. Someone who was taken into slavery had no rights of their own. They were chained and cursed under a law that said, you are property of that. You and I, apart from Christ, are property of sin. We cannot break that curse that we are under. There's nothing we can do but just like somebody who would come and redeem a slave and pay the price and pay the penalty for them to be set free, we look to Jesus, perfectly righteous, 
no condemnation, a sacrificial lamb without blemish who says to us, I'll take the curse for you. That's the gospel. Quite literally, Jesus became the curse instead of us when he died on the cross. He was hung on a tree so that Romans 8, 1 could be true. Look at this verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Think about that. Through trusting in Jesus, we become the offspring of Abraham, the people of God. Abraham was pointing us to Christ. Paul is pointing us back to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone. You're granted salvation. And so we come back to the beginning where we started. And I say that what living in grace looks like is when the knowledge of who Christ is and all that he's done for you begins to change what you ought to do into what you want to do. That's the takeaway for you today. There's good news in living for Jesus. Because it, when it's not focused on the law and it's not focused on the measurement, it becomes a relationship. It becomes a relationship with you and Christ. And you begin to live in the freedom of grace. We're going to continue studying in the next couple chapters, but when we get to chapter 5, Paul's going to say it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. And walking with Jesus should never feel like slavery. If it feels like slavery, you've put too much on your shoulders. Walking with Jesus is increasingly getting to where what I ought to do is what I want to do. And you're never going to get that quite right. Because if you get it right, you won't need Jesus. Amen? Let me pray for us. And the band's come up and lead us in song. Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're grateful that you did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And we just want to take a minute to praise you, Jesus. Because we didn't deserve it. We still don't deserve it. We love the fact that Paul tells us in your word that we are to walk just as the way we came. Just as you saved us is how we walk with you. And so, Father, we're grateful. We're grateful that you initiated that blessing, that relationship, that covenant with Abraham so many thousands of years ago. And that because you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, we trust that same promise. And we live in that same reality that you are good, that you are sufficient, and we can put all of our trust in you. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would massage the truth of your word into our hearts, that we would trust you. We would trust you not just with our salvation, but with our sanctification. That we would trust you to do the work in us that you promised that you would. And that you would just remove our desire for sin. We need your help, Holy Spirit. 
love our sin. We repent of that today. Corporately, we repent of our sin. And ask that you would be faithful to forgive us. And as we lift up your name, Jesus, pray that you be glorified in this place. That you would be made more famous in this city as a result of this church and all the churches like it. To the glory of the Father. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.